So I know today kind of feels like Christmas because you're going to get to leave with all kinds of stuff, right? You're going to get to leave with these boxes and you're going to get to leave with tracts and New Testaments and invite cards and all kinds of stuff. So it's, it's like a Christmas or like a birthday. Speaking of which, today is my wife's birthday. So let's all say, Happy birthday, Julia. I would not be here today without her. So I'm very thankful for my wife and all that she does. Uh, studies show the importance uh, for families uh, to do lots of things together, specifically dining together. And that's one thing that our family sometimes does better at than others, and that's sitting around the dining room table to eat dinner with together. Almost all high-risk behaviors that you might think of, drug abuse, underage drinking, premarital sex, are drastically reduced. When you look at the statistics, they're drastically reduced by the simple act of having a family dinner at least two or three times a week. That's pretty impressive. Sharing a meal at the table is one of the most human things we can do. I mean, think about it. There's no other animal that gathers around a table to eat together, right? You don't see you know, other creatures doing that. But human beings, we do that. Why do we do that? Well, it's because we're created in the image of God. And when we gather together at a table, we are recognizing and affirming the image of God within each of us. It connects us in a way that few things do. So we shouldn't be surprised to see that God shows up at tables a lot. Throughout the Bible, we see God showing up at tables. In fact, the table is, is the center of the spiritual life in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, what's the table at which the Jewish life centered around? We might call that the Passover table. And in the New Testament, we might call it the Lord's Supper table, right? Or the communion table. Those are the two tables upon which the people of God's lives have revolved. And of course, you know, we just finished this series in the 23rd Psalm where we learned that our good shepherd prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Jesus prepares a meal for us like no other because it came at the cost of his own life. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life in order to feed his sheep. He laid down his life for us. His Sheep, so that we might celebrate eternally, not at this table, but at the table this one points to, that heavenly table of the marriage feast of the Lamb that we will get to celebrate at for all of eternity. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him at a variety of tables. In the temple, remember Jesus overturned some tables, didn't he? He overturned the tables of the money changers because those tables represented corruption, and exploitation and unjust exclusion. At the home of Simon the leper, Jesus sat at a table with his friends. But at this table, he was interrupted by an uninvited guest, a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume. But Jesus welcomed her to his table. And in the upper room, Jesus sat at the Passover table, at the Seder meal table, a table of sacrifice, betrayal, and covenant community. And I want us to notice that Jesus shared his table with insiders and outsiders, with his friends, but also with his enemies. 
Truly, that gives new meaning to the phrase, He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Jesus had enemies eating with Him at His table. Everyone is welcome to come to the table of Christ. So I want us to turn to the book of Mark. If you will, Mark chapter 14. I want us to look at Mark's account of this first Lord's Supper and discover how Jesus has prepared a table for us, a table like no other. Let's look at this. I'm going to read these, then I'll refer back to several verses as we go. Beginning in verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations? As Ben talked about, make preparations for you to eat the Passover. So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go to the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup. Gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The first thing I want us to notice there in verses 12 through 16 is that the table is set. The table is set. Now, in the verses leading up to this story, there's a lot of preparation happening all around Jesus. Religious leaders are preparing their plot to falsely accuse and arrest Jesus. Jesus' body was prepared for burial as the woman with the alabaster jar anointed him. Judas has already made preparations to betray Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. And then we come to verse 12. Look back at verse 12. Here Jesus and his disciples begin their preparation for the Passover meal. A meal that Jesus will reinterpret to prepare his disciples for his impending death. Now the Passover, the feast of the unleavened bread, was a celebration that God commanded to his people Israel that they should celebrate it every year as a reminder of how God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And you might remember that that final plague that came on the people of Egypt was the death of the firstborn son in every family. And to spare the Hebrews, God commanded every household to take a spotless year-old male lamb to sacrifice it and to put its blood on the doorposts. And when that death angel would come through the land of Egypt and it would see the blood on the doorposts, it would pass over their households, and spare their lives. This was the final step God took in setting the people of Israel free from slavery. 
And so God commanded all generations of His people to commemorate this act of salvation and deliverance through the annual Feast of Unleavened Bread. As many good Jewish rabbis would do, Jesus made plans to observe this meal with His disciples, His students. Now look at verse 13. It says that He sent two of His disciples and He gave them these instructions of what to do to go and to look for the preparation of this meal. Now, you have to remember that Jesus was a fugitive at this point. Right? He, he was, he was um, not a welcome individual in most circles. To know Jesus was risky business. To be found in his company could be dangerous. To harbor him could be deadly. But Jesus needed a room. He needed a place to celebrate the Passover meal. The question is, would anyone give him room? Now, you might remember that Jesus' story begins in an upper room. Uh, when it says in the story of Jesus' birth uh, in Luke about the inn, there was no room in the inn. An inn in that day, you know, it wasn't like the Hampton Inn. All right, that's not what it was. There wasn't big no vacancy sign and neon out front. No, an inn was an upper room. It was usually the upper residence of a household. Maybe underneath you would have where the, the sheep and the, and the cattle and the donkeys would be. And up above were the living quarters. And lots of times in these houses you'd have a spare room, basically, that you could put up traveling family and friends in. That's likely what that means. So Jesus' story begins in an upper room where there is no room for him. There was no room for Jesus. And now, when it's so much riskier to put up Jesus for, for, for a place to stay, will there be room for him? Will somebody provide room for Jesus here at the end of his life on earth and his ministry here? And we see in verses 14 through 16 that there was one. There was one who dared risk his reputation, his livelihood, maybe even his very life. And he's as anonymous as the woman who anointed Jesus' feet the day before. And once again... We know this follower of Jesus only by his actions, his self-giving love, the worth that he placed on Jesus' life. Now, this man was obviously wealthy, right? He was wealthy enough to afford a room large enough for at least 13 people to be in for Passover. That's a pretty big room, especially in that day in a crowded, bustling city like Jerusalem. It was a room that was furnished. Everything they needed was already going to be there. They didn't have to go out looking for this stuff. And it was a room that likely probably had servants bustling around because obviously there's a servant of this man that they're looking for, carrying the the jar of water. So this was a man who had something to lose. Like the woman with the perfume. He loved Jesus with everything he had. What about you? Are you willing to give Jesus room in your life? Will you risk your all to harbor Jesus in the midst of a dark and hostile world to Christ and His kingdom? Will you invite Jesus into your heart? What about your workplace? Your home? Your weekend activities? Is Jesus worth enough to you to risk everything that you have for? I mean, He laid down His life for you. Are you willing to lay down your life for Him? The man with the upper room, obviously, was willing. And he had prearranged with Jesus for this special meal. Now, this tells us something about Jesus. Jesus had a plan. Jesus wasn't winging it here. He wasn't making this up as he went. Kind of like his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus had made 
preparations for that as well. Similarly, he sent the disciples ahead of him to find the donkey and to untie it. And he had kind of a code phrase to let the owner know that, yeah, we're with Jesus. You know, we're, we're here to take this for him. And so once again, Jesus gives Peter and John a secret signal to watch out for. And it's a, it's a subtle distinction. Usually in that day and age, women would carry these water jars on their head. Men would carry sacks of wine. But here's a man carrying a water jar. So he would have stood out. He would have been a little awkward looking. The events about to unfold, think about this, have been in the workings for millennia. What's about to happen has been in the workings really since eternity past. And Jesus made the effort to plan, to prepare for the most crucial event in human history. Now, you may not feel like that your life hinges, uh, the history hinges on your life the way it hinges on Calvary. You may think, well, my life, nothing I do is going to be anywhere near as consequential as what Jesus did on the cross. My day-to-day affairs don't have any kind of cosmic consequences. But you'd be wrong. You are a part of God's redemptive story. Your life matters. The things you say and do can have eternal consequences. So do you, like Jesus, take the time to prepare? Do you prepare for your day every day? Asking, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Give me the opportunity to change someone's eternal trajectory. Is there anything more consequential you could ever do in your life? Do you approach packing a backpack or a shoebox saying, God, lead and guide me to what this child is going to need as I pack this shoebox? How are you doing at preparing yourself to encounter God at work in, through, and around you every day? How are you preparing yourself to come to worship Him and study His Word every week? Jesus prepared for you. And as Ben so aptly told the children, what are we doing to prepare for Him? Amen? The table is set. Secondly, we see the seat is saved. You have a seat saved at Jesus' table. Now, in Jewish culture, they mark the day from sundown to sundown, right? So as they are eating this meal, technically it's already Good Friday. In the Jewish mind, it's already the day that Jesus will not see the end of. He will be dead and buried by the next sundown. His disciples will be hiding, scattered, and scared. And in verse 18, we see Jesus telling them this. I mean, he's predicting that they're going to betray him. One's going to betray him, the rest are going to abandon him. This is prophesied in Psalm 41.9 when it says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, was, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. As we've seen before, we've talked about, Jesus welcomed everyone to his table, even one he knew intended to betray him. Even those he knew would abandon him and run away and save their own skin. Even the disciple he loved so much that he knew would deny him three times. The goodness and mercy of our good shepherd. They don't pursue us because of our goodness, right? They don't pursue us because we're faithful. Thank the Lord his mercies are new every morning. And we are saved by Jesus' grace, not our good works. Because haven't we all in some way or another betrayed, denied, or abandoned Jesus? When it seems like he is just asking too much of us. When our family, friends, maybe an employer or a co-worker pressure us to do things the world's way. 
When the pleasures of this life seem more desirable than the riches of heaven, don't we often turn away from Jesus in fear, embarrassment? Rather than willing to lay down our lives for Him, we try to save our own selves. Though we forsake Him, does He ever forsake us? Does He ever forsake us? Does He? No. And in verse 21, look there. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about Him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. We have to understand that even though God the Father has ordered all of these things, Jesus' death and resurrection, it's all been prophesied. Jesus is fulfilling all of this. Still, each person involved was responsible for their own actions. Judas wasn't predestined by God to do this. He wasn't some puppet on a string that God was manipulating. He had free will, which is why the gospel writers never absolve Judas of his responsibility for his act of betrayal. You know, we, we want to pass the buck like Adam and Eve did, did in the Garden of Eden. We want to somehow blame God. We want to say the devil made me do it, right? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter what our circumstances in life, God will hold each of us responsible for our actions and for our choices, especially for what we do with Jesus. Judas was held responsible for what he did with Jesus. And what did he do? He rejected Jesus. You're going to be held responsible for what you do with Jesus. Do you reject him or do you accept him? Do you believe in him and trust him or do you trust in yourself? Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Four. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because He has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Listen, we all stand condemned already apart from Christ. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. You condemn yourself. Judas condemned himself. It's not God's doing. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. He came to forgive. He didn't come to enslave. We're already enslaved to sin. He came to set us free. What will you do with Jesus? He has saved a seat for you at His table. You are welcome. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you are in life, you are welcome at Jesus' table. There's a seat saved for you. The question is, will you take His invitation to sit and dine with Him? The table is set. Your seat is saved. And finally we see that the meal is served. The meal is served. On this particular Passover, Jesus commemorated the old, but he was also anticipating the new. He intended this to be more than just a normal Passover meal. He was reinterpreting this Seder meal for his disciples to prepare them in three ways. One, to understand his death. See, this meal is both celebration and fulfillment. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright explains it this way. When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. What does this meal do to help us understand Jesus' death? Well, Jesus reinterpreted the Passover meal to not just point backwards to the Exodus, but to point forwards to the cross. See, Jesus is the new Moses. He's the new Passover lamb. 
What happened on the cross was the new exodus. Jesus parted the sea that separated sinful people from a holy God. You might remember that when Jesus died, the temple veil was rent in two from top to bottom, ushering everyone who believes into the very presence of God, set free from the bondage of sin and death. Look at verse 24. He says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Jesus explained how his death gives us a new Passover sacrifice, a new covenant, and a new community. First, it gives us a new sacrifice. That's the first thing we need to understand about his death. Now, in Exodus 24, 6-8, it says that Moses took half of the blood, put it in bowls, the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. This is when the people of Israel, they've received the law, they've heard the law, the Ten Commandments, and they're agreeing to it. They are entering into this covenant relationship with the God who has set them free. It says, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses instituted the old covenant with blood. Jesus institutes the covenant. The new covenant. Not with the blood of goats or bulls, but with His own precious blood. His blood is the blood of the new covenant that makes us clean. The writer of Hebrews explains this in chapter 9, verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Just as the blood of those sacrificial animals sealed God's covenant with Israel, so the blood of Jesus Christ seals God's covenant with all who believe in Him, with everyone who trusts in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. There's a new sacrifice. Secondly, he wants us to understand about his death that there's a new covenant. And in Luke's account of this, it says, Jesus says, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. He emphasizes that word new. Now, I want you to read along on the screen and listen to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. It says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, what was wrong with the old covenant? What was wrong with the old covenant? Sin. Our sin is what was wrong with it because the sinful hearts of the people are constantly breaking God's covenant with them. Idolatry. Immorality. We, we, we read all about that and learned all about that in our sermon series in Amos. Remember that? How unfaithful they were to the covenant. How they kept turning to idols. They were unjust. They were immoral. immoral. That springs from a sinful human heart. The old covenant could not change the human heart. And that's what we need. We need a new heart. This past week I had an opportunity to share the gospel with the guy who's working on our elevator. Pray for him. His name is Mike. Pray for him that he would receive the gospel. Pray for him as he works on our elevator and gets it done. 
because that's important, right? We want our elevator done and done right. But he was basically changing out the insides of that elevator, a new software, a new computer, because it had grown old and unreliable, and nothing that elevator could do could fix it. That's like us. That's what I told him. I said, what you're doing is like what God does for us. He comes into us and he gives us a new heart, new software. He rebuilds us and renews us from the inside out. And we could never do it on our own. That's the new covenant. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The new covenant was different in so many ways. It wasn't a law written on stone. It was a law written in our hearts and minds. The new covenant didn't concern itself with external religious rituals, but with an internal spiritual transformation. Obedience was no longer the condition for entering the covenant. Rather, obedience is the result of entering the covenant. No more would our relationship with God have to be mediated by flawed human priests who had to offer sacrifices to cover their own sins before they could come and put sacrifices to cover our sins. No, now God's people would have direct access to God through our flawless priest, Jesus Christ, who offered Himself up once and for all time for our sins. Amen? A new sacrifice, a new covenant. And when we enter into that new covenant, we enter into a new community. This new covenant wasn't exclusionary. It was inclusive. Jesus' blood was poured out for many, he says. In Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to what? To give his life as a ransom for some, for a few, For many. Now, in both places, that word many, it means for the multitudes. Some translations say that. For the multitudes. Not for one, not for a few, but for whosoever believes. For whosoever will may come. Jesus died for us. His death sets us free, secures us a place among His covenant people. Gives us a place at the table. If we but believe and repent if we trust in Jesus and turn from our sin. That new covenant community includes you and me. Now, Jesus also used the table not only to prepare his followers to understand his death, but to learn how to love one another. Now, if, if we turn over to John's gospel, this supper is accompanied by Jesus washing his disciples' feet and giving a new commandment. He says in John 13, Love one another as I have loved you, So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We often call the Lord's Supper communion. Not because so much it's us communing with God, but it's us communing together. It's an act of community. That's why we call it communion. It reminds us that we're bound by Jesus' sacrifice into this holy covenant community. We are bound to God's redemptive work in history. And so through this meal, Jesus calls all of his followers, to love one another, encourage one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds that we might make disciples of all nations. And finally, at the table, Jesus prepared his his followers to eagerly 
anticipate his return. Now, the traditional toast that's spoken at the end of a Seder meal, you have the last cup. It's a future-oriented cup. There's a number of cups at a Passover Seder meal. That last one's lifted up. It's called the Cup of Redemption. And they say, this year in Jerusalem, next year in the kingdom. That was what would have been said at Jesus' time. Now, after the fall of Jerusalem, there were no Jews celebrating Passover in Jerusalem, and so the toast just became next time in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. And that's the way it was really until Israel began to reoccupy Jerusalem again in modern times. So Jesus took this Passover Seder meal. He reinterpreted it in light of what was about to happen to him, anticipating God's saving action on the cross. So for us, the Lord's Supper is a way for us to remember what Jesus did in the past, which is why on the front of this Lord's Supper table it says, do this in remembrance of me. So like the Jews that would celebrate the Passover that has happened, for us, the Lord's Supper, we remember, we commemorate what Jesus has done for us, but we also anticipate what Jesus will do. We anticipate his return, which is why Paul writes about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What? Until he comes. So this table doesn't just point back to the cross. It points ahead to another table, to that marriage feast of the Lamb, that table that Jesus is preparing for us right now, that table we heard about in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 25. It's the table at which we will celebrate forever with Jesus. John writes about this in Revelation 19.9. He says, Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus is inviting you to his wedding supper. He's inviting you to feast at his heavenly table where death's shroud has been swallowed up forever, where there are no more tears, there's no more separation, there's no more disgrace. It's the eternal table of salvation, of joy, and of peace. But before you can make it to that table someday, you've got to come to the table that Jesus prepared for you 2,000 years ago. And I'm not talking about this Lord's Supper table. I'm talking about the table of God's grace. The table of the covenant sacrifice that Jesus laid out for you on the cross. He laid it out for you in the presence of your enemies. The enemies of Satan and sin and death. Jesus paid for that table with the sacrifice of his own life. Will you come to the Lord's table? Will you accept his invitation and sit down and dine with Jesus? Will you Partake of God's grace made available to you through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't know that, if you don't know Jesus, if you've not accepted that invitation, I beg you to do it today. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Turn from your sin in prayer right now. Put your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you and say, Jesus, I accept your invitation. I want to sit at your table. Would you come and live in me? Maybe God has laid something else on your heart today. Maybe a fresh burden for those you need to share Jesus with. Maybe somebody you need to make right your relationship with. Maybe you're not with this church family. Whatever God is saying to you, we're going to have an invitation before we approach this table. And I hope that you will take seriously what God is speaking to you. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that prepared the table before our enemies. 
Lord, in their presence, in the presence of sin, Satan, and death itself, Jesus has given us the victory. And if there's anybody that doesn't know that, if there's anybody who's never put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, I pray they would do that right now, this minute. They would say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. I've been living my own way, and I turn from that. I reject that, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And may your Spirit come and live within me. Make me new from the inside out. Give me a new heart and a new spirit that I may follow you and obey your commands. I want to sit at your table, Jesus. And if you've prayed that prayer, I pray you would let us know. Father, I pray that, that you would be with all of us this morning in the decisions that we make today and going forward, that we would always be a people prepared to share the good news and to obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.